So we're kind of switching gears into a few weeks here of a conversation um, about the origin and the history of the Bible. Now, made mention many times of many beliefs that we have, and we get these beliefs from the Bible. But we haven't talked about in this class yet, well, why should I believe the Bible and not some other holy book? There's a lot of competing holy books out there. There's competing uh, points of view and competing claims. So we're going to spend a few weeks talking about the Bible. And so I thought it would be good to um, start off these conversations with sort of a general... We've been alluding to these things in our series on Jesus, but we're talking today about the question, can you trust what the New Testament says about Jesus? And in particular, we're focusing on the Gospels and the book of Acts, because this is really the heart of where our faith comes from. And if it's reliable in those places, then at least is reasonable for us to conclude that it could be reliable in other places. So if you remember back, if you have your creeds, uh, if anyone has their creeds with them, if you want to pull out like the Nicene Creed, is I'd like to start off by talking about what does the Nicene Creed have to say about the Bible? This very pivotal and... uh, central focus of our faith as Christians. What does the Nicene Creed have to say about the Bible? I see Melinda's getting hers out. Thank you. Gabby's got hers. So just skim through it real quick. So Melinda or Gabby, when you, you have something, you just, you just shout it right out to me. Yeah? So where does it mention the Bible? Yeah, Mr. John? Nowhere. Nowhere. That's right. It's not mentioned in the most ancient creeds. Isn't that interesting? This thing that is so pivotal for us, so foundational, is not mentioned in the earliest Christian creeds. That's a very interesting observation as to why that is. Does that mean like they didn't value the Bible? I mean, we don't want to make too many assumptions about that. So this is from our doctrinal statement on our website. This was under one word. It says, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, given by plenary and verbal inspiration of God, and the only, are the only infallible rule of faith and practice. How many of you know what the word plenary means? It's kind of a word we don't use anymore. I'm surprised it's in the, 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 on the website version of the doctrinal statement. Yeah, it's like kind of the fully inspired. It's both word for word. It's the verbal inspiration. And it's infallible both in faith and in practice. Okay. Um, in our longer church doctrine statement that they give you in the allegedly in the uh, All About Grace class, in the longer statement, we believe the Bible is the absolute objective truth for all people uh, at all, for all times. It is without error in concept or detail in the original writings. It is inspired, every word divinely preserved and therefore trustworthy. So heavy emphasis here in our church doctrinal statement on the error-free nature of scripture. Okay. So we want to explore these things because it is such a core part of who we are as Christians to um, understand where these statements kind of come from and 
what's behind them. So we've talked about this concept before, so I want to quickly go through this, is the, the relationship between theology and history. Now, one way to summarize the key teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was the incarnate Son of God who died on the cross to atone for the sins of humanity and rose bodily from the dead. So we're going to go through these key statements, and I want you to tell me, is this history or theology? Okay, so the first one is Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. Is that theology or history? It's theology, right? Jesus Christ of Nazareth living, is that theology or history? History. That's more history, right? But to say that he's the incarnate son of God is more of a theological assertion to it. So then we say he died on the cross. Is that theology or history? History. It's more history. history. It's a historical issue. To atone for the sins of humanity, is that more theology or history? It's theology. And he rose bodily from the dead. Is that theology or history? It's history, but it has a theological implication, right, that we would assign to that. But the fact that he rose is a historical claim, is a historical assertion. But what I want you to see is the intertwining of, in our faith between theology and history. It's, it's all kind of wrapped up in there together. But we have to understand, I think, that the relationship between theology and history is extremely important in Christianity. See, the question of whether the Buddha was even a real historical person is a question. In our religion, we don't have that luxury <laughs> Well, Jesus may or may not have been a real historical person. Everything rides on the history, the theology. They're interconnected. And I like to visually say this, is that history provides the foundation for our theology. Our theology is then built on top of this. So when we say Jesus rose from the dead then that has theological implications about him being God, proving that he has power over death, um, that it gives us hope that we will rise one day from the dead. These are all theological statements, right? Theological hopes. So the relationship between theology and history is extremely important for the Christian faith. And the acceptance of certain theological claims depend on whether the Gospels are actually a historically reliable account of the life and ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. These things are all intertwined with each other. Are you with me? So this is uh, not a tangential point when it comes to talking about the Christian faith. So I'm going to uh, consider a couple of arguments here about the reliability of the Gospels. And the first argument that or assertion we're going to make is that the Gospels preserve an eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. So 
the re- we looked last week at a series of, I listed out for you a series of um, scripture passages of the repeated claims that the, the Gospels preserve eyewitness accounts. There's one that we did not read that I want to make sure we read today, which is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. So who's got that for me? Okay, Hartley, you got it? Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Very good. So what is it that he's preserving? What is the Gospel of Luke? It is what? Eyewitness. It's an orderly account. The implication is that he's talked to people. He's interviewed them. Now, just think about the, the birth narrative of Jesus. It has some very intimate details of the birth narrative of Jesus, of how he was born. How could he get that information? Luke wasn't there. He t- probably talked to Mary. The, the tradition is that Mary was one of his sources. And this is how he had access to things like um, the, the temple, uh, situation in the temple when Jesus gets left behind. How would Luke know that? If you interviewed the mother, you would know, right? If you ever lost your child at the mall, you would probably remember that, right? And if someone talked to you 20 years later, you could, you could recount some details about that. Some things don't leave you, right, as a mom. You would remember that. <laughs> That's right. So there's, it, the, the tradition is that Luke interviewed these people, and this is part of how he compiled it. Also, he mentions that there are already other gospel accounts. Well, it's probably referring to Matthew and Mark. So he uses those as sources as well. So we're thinking about what the sources are, but there, there are these repeated claims. Now remember, a claim is not the same as a proof, right? An assertion is not the same as a conclusion. But the claim is that these books preserve eyewitness accounts. So the critical step here is that we have to demonstrate that the Gospels were written early, not hundreds of years later, because they involved the preservation of eyewitness accounts. Now, remember what we said last week. The assertion by neo-atheists is that gospels, the Gospels were written hundreds of years later by, uh, after the fact and not by eyewitnesses, right? So we're directly countering that assertion by saying on our side of the fence, we're asserting that the Gospels were written early using eyewitnesses, recording the accounts of eyewitnesses, and they were not written hundreds of years later. So we're going to talk about uh, an acquaintance of mine. Uh, and have any of you ever heard of a guy named J. Warner Wallace? A few of you. He's a kind of rising star in, in Christian apologetics. He's a Retired LAPD detective. You ever watch the show Dateline? Uh-huh. Yeah, he's frequently interviewed on Dateline. He does cold cases, 
or he did when he was working. He's retired now. But, you know, he gets the cases that they've run out of leads, they've run out of ideas, they've run out of options. You know, 30 years later, 20 or 30 years later, it's coming across his desk, and he's got a, the fresh pair of eyes to look at it. So Jay Warner Wallace uh, uses his, what he's learned as a cold case detective, and he kind of applies a lot of those principles to the realm of uh, what he calls case-making for the Christian faith, or what we call apologetics. So if you are new to this whole realm and you kind of want something really basic and kind of get on the on-ramp with people, I really recommend his stuff because he's real, he does a nice job of taking the primary research of other researchers and kind of collating it together in a way that a layperson can understand. He's not, he doesn't do his own research, but he utilizes, like he just came out with a, a book that's basically, he took all several books written by my employer and then massively simplified them for laypeople and using his cold case approach. So if you want to kind of get into that conversation, he's sort of the one that I recommend. Okay, so we're going to use a little bit of his stuff today. I'm going to show you a couple video clips here of him so you can get a feel for his style. Uh, cold case detectives investigate specific types of criminal events, events that occurred in the distant past. There are typically no more living eyewitnesses, and there is little or no direct physical evidence. Many of the cases he would investigate were before the days of even DNA analysis. Many of the, the modern methods that we have today were not available in the, in the 70s and the 80s. <clears throat> so he compares, or he says the goal here is to make a case by examining the nature of circumstantial evidence and assembling a convincing cumulative and circumstantial case. So what you're looking for is kind of a multiple lines of evidence approach where you're building a cumulative case. And that is how cold case detectives put together evidence, give it to prosecutors, and get people put into prison all the time. So we're just borrowing that strategy or what we've been calling in class abductive reasoning. We're using that and applying that to the New Testament. We can use a similar strategy to investigate questions related to the historical reliability of the Gospels. The Gospels record events that occurred in the distant past. Check. From which there are no living eyewitnesses. Check. And there's no direct physical evidence today. And so there are some similarities or some parallels that um, Jim uses in uh, investigating these cold cases and then he's applying those principles to the New Testament, okay? So we're going to watch a quick clip that's addressing this first um, argument about the Gospels being written early. And he was so kind as to share his PowerPoint slides with me. So I've got them there for you in the notes. When we're evaluating witnesses, we test them. And we test them in trial by allowing our jurors to think of about 14 questions in California they can ask in their mind to assess an eyewitness on the stand. And they break down into these four categories. But to make it easy, I'll give it to you in simple words. If a witness qualifies in these four large areas, we are to consider them reliable. And we're going to look at those this morning, and we're going to have to build a circumstantial case to support each of these points. 
So I need to teach you about circumstantial evidence first, right? And that's the first question under consideration. Was the witness really there when he said he was? If someone's not present, they can't be the killer. Also, if they're not present, they can't be an eyewitness. So we have to ask this question of the gospel authors. We have an event in the past, the ministry of Jesus, and we have a time in the history in which the early Christians made a claim about what was a reliable eyewitness account. It's a church council known as the Council of Laodicea. It's the first council where people said, hey, you can trust that eyewitness account and you can trust that eyewitness account, but the Gospel of Thomas, no, that's late. Gospel of Philip, no, that's late. Gospel of Mary, no, that's late. And they started tossing out the non-canonicals. But how do we know when the, the actual eyewitnesses or the alleged eyewitnesses actually wrote the Gospels? If they wrote the Gospels down at this end of the timeline, you really shouldn't trust them. They're too late to be eyewitness accounts. They're written in the third century. Come on, guys. There's nobody around who still even would know. Now, there's lots of folks who are doing important work who would, I think, advocate for a position such as this, like Bart Ehrman, who's written a number of books really trying to convince people that the version of Christianity we have today really isn't necessarily the true one. It's just the one that won. There's lots of lost Christianities that no one even pays attention to anymore. And, you know, you really can't trust that you know what Jesus said because much of Jesus' words have been redacted or there's so many variants between the text, you can't really trust any of it. And finally, you can't even trust that the people whose names are on those books are actually the people who wrote them because they've all been forged. If, though, the authors... By the way, Bart Ehrman, raised in the church, Moody Bible Institute, Wheaton College... Study under Bruce Metzger, probably one of the finest biblical scholars in the 20th century at Princeton Seminary, not a believer. And he's one of the most influential, well-read biblical authorities in the North American continent. And young people, when they go to college, they're probably going to be introduced to Bart Ehrman. And they're not going to know the truth before they get there. So that's what we're going to do this morning. If this is true, and they're written late, we should discard them. On the other hand, if they're written down toward this end of the timeline, they can at least pass the first test. They were present. Doesn't mean they're telling the truth, but they're lying early. And it's hard to lie early. All right. So how do we know when this was actually... I think there's a good circumstantial case you can build for early dating. So here we are. Bible scholars, Sunday school graduates, here we go. What's the one book in the Bible in which... The first century after the ascension of Jesus is described. Book of Acts. Very good. Thank you. In the book of Acts, where do you hear about the destruction of the temple? We know the temple was destroyed right around 70 AD, according to historians, not Christians. So where in the book of Acts do they describe the destruction of the temple? Remember, this is a horrific event preceded by several years by a siege of Jerusalem in which they blockaded the city, starved everyone who was in there, and eventually knocked down the walls and destroyed the temple. Now, I would think it would be in there, in the book of Acts. After all, Jesus is going to predict it in Matthew 23. Does Luke include it in the book of Acts? No. There's no New Testament book that includes either the siege or the destruction of the temple. How about this? At the end of the book of Acts, is Paul alive or dead? Come on, graduates. This is the uh, audience participation part of the uh, actual service. He's alive. He's in custody in Rome. But we know he's martyred between 64 and 67. 
Why is he still alive at the end of the book of Acts? Why is Peter still alive? He's also martyred about the same time. And James, the brother of Jesus, is martyred in 61. That's not mentioned in the book of Acts. Now think about it for a second. Why would these things be missing from the book of Acts? Can you think of a, a, a good reason why these five events, I've only got four, but actually Peter's death is here too. Why would these be missing from the book of Acts? Hadn't happened yet. So I will just place Luke's authorship just one year ahead of the first missing event. That's just modest. I could place it 10 years ahead of the first missing event, right? But I'm just going to place it one year ahead of it. Now, he wrote two books, right? Luke wrote what books? He wrote the book of Acts and what else? Gospel of Luke. And he wrote the Gospel of Luke before the book of Acts. We know that because in the first verse of the book of Acts, it says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, verse 2, until he was taken up to heaven. So we know that Luke comes before Acts. I place it as early as 53. Why do I place it at 53? Because I think there's good internal evidence. So let's go to Paul. Paul's going to write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. And he says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church are well worthy of double honor. And he says, For the scripture says, and I loved seeing that as a skeptic, because I want to know, what do these first century Christians think scripture is? How early is it showing up? Well, he quotes two verses. Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out, of the, uh, out the grain is from Deuteronomy. So he's got an Old Testament verse there. But the second verse, And the worker deserves his wages. Where is that from? That, he's not quoting out of the Old Testament. He's quoting that out of the New Testament. That is out of the Gospel of Luke. So now we have Paul, as early as 63, quoting the Gospel of Luke to Timothy, who either knows, he must already know that it's the Gospel. He must already know it is Scripture, because Paul's, I don't think Paul's saying for the first time, and by the way, Timothy, this is Scripture. He's just identifying it. Now, I'll be honest, Bart Ehrman does not accept First Timothy as a Pauline book. Okay. There's a bigger problem because even before this book, in First Corinthians, which is written at 57 to 53, uh, 53, 57 AD, it's a much earlier book, Paul does something very similar. In this he says, he's going to quote, remember the Corinthians are having problems, they're not celebrating the Lord's Supper properly, they're always messing it up, they're not respectful, they're doing all kinds of things they shouldn't do. So Paul says, remember how you're supposed to do this, folks. And he goes back and he recites the, the, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. He took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, if you read through all the Gospels, looking at the Lord's Supper, you'll see that every Gospel author includes it, but only one says that Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. It's not Mark. It's not Matthew. It's not John. Here, Paul once again is quoting directly from the Gospel of Luke. And he's quoting chapter 22. He's quoting it to a group to remind them to return to something they already know. And he's quoting it as early as 53 to 57. How much earlier did they already know this? How long has this been canonized as scripture? It must have been pretty early. Because he's asking them to return to it. So that's why I think it's reasonable for us to place the gospel of Luke right around 53. That's modest because I'm placing it pretty close to the actual time of this writing. Now, what I thought was really fascinating about the Gospel of Luke, and I, I had been trained in forensic statement analysis before I came on, as a, before I even looked at the Gospels. In a forensic statement analysis, we examine the written statements of suspects. And we're examining them for their use of, of certain language, of deception. 
We're also examining it for their use of pronouns, for their verb tenses, for whether they expand time or contract time. I did the same thing with all the Gospels because I was so interested in their accuracy. And what I noticed in the very first chapter of, the, of, of, of Luke's Gospel, he says this, Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. He's not an eyewitness. He's a detective who's talking to the eyewitnesses and writing it down. And he tells Theophilus, the same guy he was talking to in the book of Acts, he says, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account. Why would he say an orderly? Look, if I'm going to write a supplemental report about a crime, you can be sure it's going to be orderly. Duh. But he makes a point of saying his is orderly. Why? I think I know. In the first century, a bishop named Papias says that Mark was scribing for Peter when he was writing the Gospel of Mark. That Mark's Gospel is simply the teaching of Peter in Rome, teaching everyone about what he experienced with Jesus. And that Mark is writing everything Jesus says. And Papias says in the first century that Mark was being very careful about accuracy, but not that careful about order. Hmm. Now Luke says, I'm giving you an orderly account, Theophilus. And who's the one person he quotes word for word more than anyone else? Mark, the disorderly account. It's as if he's saying, I'm giving you Mark's account, but I've added stuff that he didn't add, and I've also got it in the right order. That means that Mark's account has to exist prior to Luke's account for him to quote it. And look how close it puts it to the events. Now we're within 10, 15 years of the actual events. Not only could they have been young enough and, and actually have lived to have seen this stuff, but they have to write it at a time when others who would have known better can say, time out. That never happened. I know Jesus. He never did that stuff. If you're writing early, it's harder to lie. Was that helpful? Yeah, I, I, enjoy, I enjoy his way. He has a hobby as an artist, so he makes all his own uh, graphics and everything. So he was nice enough to let me have the slides and the video clips. So... I figured, well, he could say it better than me. I'll just let you get, get to know him a little bit, so that way you can find him if you want other teachings. I should have added that he was an atheist until he was well into his 30s. Uh, he grew up LDS, and then he was an atheist for quite a long time. And then he started reading the New Testament. I can't remember why, but then came to faith in, in Christ as a result of that. And using kind of his background as a detective, um, that uh, he really found the, the gospel accounts to be very compelling for him as having the earmarks of being eyewitness accounts. So he's kind of turned that into a little uh, cottage apologetics ministry. Okay. Is he available on YouTube? Oh, yeah. He's got tons of videos on YouTube. Yeah. His uh, website, I think, is coldcasechristianity.com. And if you just... Search for uh, J. Warner Wallace on YouTube. You can get a lot, of, a lot of messages by him. He's very, very popular now on the uh, apologetics speaking circuit. So, dot com, dot com. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, let's move on to our second argument. I should add, there was uh, one statement he forgot to make in there. Um, and that is the reason he went to 1 Corinthians is because 
1 Corinthians is a book that Bart Ehrman loves. And he affirms it as being authentically Pauline. And so as being written by the Apostle Paul. So even if Paul, even if I accept the assertion that Paul didn't write Timothy, let's go to an epistle that that liberals will say pretty unequivocally uh, that Paul did write is Corinthians. And it's very early. And that gets us like into the mid-50s. Okay. So he's kind of building the case there of pushing that marker back further and further in time. Did that make sense to you? Did you find it compelling? So when you start adding up, remember we're talking about making a cumulative circumstantial case. And when you look at multiple lines of evidence, it starts looking as if we're pushing that marker further back in time to early authorship. Okay, let's look at the second argument here. And that is external sources corroborate the accuracy of the Gospels and Acts. Now, we already looked at some external sources last week, and we're going to watch a second video clip by him, and he's going to make reference to those again. Well, how can I verify things? In cold cases, I can sometimes verify witnesses' statements by other pieces of physical evidence like DNA, fingerprints, shoe marks, tool marks, other witnesses who even testify to confirm what the first witness said, right? Let's take a look at that. Do we have anything like that DNA when examining a historical event? Kind of. We can look at archaeology and see if archaeology helps us out. Now, look, I'm not going to give you a rundown of all the New Testament archaeology that confirms it, but but I do want you to notice one thing. Historically, lots of skepticism has been leveled at the Bible because not everything in the Bible can be affirmed archaeologically. Oh, really? Duh. Really? I can't find things that are thousands of years? I can't find every single little thing a thousand, thousands of years ago? I can't find little things from 30 years ago. Okay? So I, I'm okay with that. But what's interesting is every time somebody levels a claim at the Bible, for the most part they're made to be stupid. For example, all of these are things that people thought at one time or another were simply not true because there was no archaeological evidence for them. And then, sure enough, sometime in the last two centuries, archaeological evidence has been found to support these things. For the most part, all you can say is that some things archaeology is simply silent about. But many things that were doubted by the skeptics, here's four more. Many things that were doubted by the skeptics were later affirmed by archaeologists. And I bet you if you just be quiet and wait, you'll find the thing that you're looking for will eventually be confirmed. I think we do have good reason to believe that as much as archaeology could support the eyewitness testimony of the Gospels, it has supported the eyewitness testimony of the Gospels. But what about other things? You know, I mean, it's one thing to have the DNA, but I wish I had another witness who could affirm what the Gospels say. The problem I have with the Gospels is they're all written by Christians. The problem I have with the Gospels is there's no external support. You would think somebody would write about Jesus, wouldn't they? Let's take a look and see what there is. Again, this is not going to be a talk tonight about tons and tons of manuscript evidence, but I want you just to get a general principle here. Let's take a look at some of the statements of hostile writers of the time right around Jesus' life who are pagan authors. They're not Christian authors. They don't want to affirm the truth about Christianity. They are not fans of Christianity, but in describing Christianity, they back in to certain details. 
Take a look at a few. These are the, uh, this is what Jesus, if we were gonna describe Jesus just based on what the pagans tell us about Jesus in the first century, here's what we'd know about Jesus. Give me an example, let's start here with Thallus. He's quoted by Julius Africanus. If you wanna ask questions about some of this, please tweet the questions in, I'll answer them afterwards. Be happy to do that, but Thallus is gonna say certain things. I'm not gonna read the entire text of everything that's up here, but I'll read this first one. He's describing the uh, point of the crucifixion and what has been reported to have happened at the crucifixion, and he's trying to describe it in a very naturalistic way because he doesn't want to admit that it's anything divine. So what he says is, on the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, this is Julius Africanus describing what Thallus wrote, in the third book of his history calls, as appears to me without reason, according to Africanus, an eclipse of the sun. So Africanus is saying that in this early history of Jesus, written in 52, that Thallus is describing the darkness at the crucifixion as an eclipse. That's all, it's just an eclipse. It's a coincidence. Now, what is he backed into? Jesus lived, was crucified, there was darkness and an earthquake. And you may not agree with how he describes it, but you gotta give us that, right? He just backed into three facts, whether you thought so or not. Let's go to somebody else, and we're gonna continue our list on the side, you'll see. How about Tacitus? He gives us a little more, and he backs into these facts. He basically ends up calling Jesus the Christ, who lived in Judea, crucified under Pontius Pilate, and his followers were persecuted. Now, it's not that Tacitus is, is, a, is a Christian. He's reporting about Christ. Do you want me to read that to you so you can see what he said? Maybe I should. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment. By the way, what's that superstition? That's interesting. He doesn't say what it is. A most, a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. This mischievous, mischievous stuff, maybe it's the resurrection. So what does he give us in denying the divinity of Christ and denying that Jesus is who he said he is, he still gives us that there was a guy named Jesus who was called the Christ who lived in Judea who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and whose followers were persecuted and this dates very early in history. Let's go a little further. Mara Barserapan, writing to his son and describing a number of philosophers and religious leaders of his day wrote, what benefit did the Athenians obtain by putting Socrates to death? Famine and plague came upon them as judgment for their crime, or the people of Samos for burning Pythagoras. In one moment, their country, their county, our country, was covered with sand, or the Jews by murdering their wise king. After that, their kingdom was abolished. God rightly avenged these men. The wise king lived on in the teachings he enacted. So Jesus here is described as the wise king, and the Jews are described as having a hand in his death. See how we're starting to get facts about Jesus that are coming through? And these are not people who are friendly to Christianity. These are people who are actually hostile to Christianity. I'm gonna give you one more to round out our description of Jesus. From Phlegon. 
Here we go, and he writes, and this is still about 80 to 140 AD, he's quoted by somebody else, and that's, I think, a point of contention for a lot of atheists. I'll be happy to answer those questions in the, in the um, Twitter form. So just throw in any question you have about the reliability of these sources. Now, Flagan, in the 13th or 14th book, I think, of his Chronicles, not only ascribed to Jesus a knowledge of future events, but also testified that the result corresponded to his predictions. Hmm. Jesus, while alive, was of no assistance to himself, but that he arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed how his hands had been pierced by nails. Now, look, no one here is saying this is true. He's just saying there's a very early tradition in history in which this Jesus guy, we added some more facts, he foresaw the future accurately, he rose after death, and he showed his injuries. Now, let's just stop right here. If I had no gospels, but was doing a historic study of this guy called Jesus, and all I had were these pagan sources, I could make this list of facts. I would know at least that there's a guy named Jesus who lived, who was crucified. An earthquake and darkness occurred at the crucifixion. He was called the Christ and lived in Judea. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. His followers were persecuted afterwards. He was the wise king. The Jews had a hand in his death. He foresaw the future, rose after death. He showed his injuries to his followers. That's a lot to know. And I have to even open scripture to find it. Here's his book, Cold Case Christianity. So if you want more details, you can go on his website. It's a few, it's a few years old, but yeah, it's fairly recent. So in the last couple weeks, we've looked at a lot of different ways of coming at the historicity of scripture Um, Hopefully this has been helpful to you and kind of maybe you didn't really ever think about these things before. Maybe, you know, your faith isn't in jeopardy about this, but this can be something that you can share with someone else about the important relationship between history and theology. Okay.